Richard Sturzberg was head of CBC's English services, television, online, and radio from 2004 to 2010. Before that, he was executive director of Telefilm Canada, where he achieved the largest share for Canadian movies at the domestic box office in history. He has also been chair of the Canadian Television Fund, CEO of the satellite television company Star Choice, president of the Canadian Cable Television Association, and assistant deputy minister for culture and broadcasting. He has been a member of the boards of the Canadian Film Centre, the Banff Television Festival, and the Sectoral Advisory Group on International Trade in Cultural Products. He lives in Toronto. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much. Let's start off with the Pilkington Report, the report that guided the BBC. There's a line in it that goes, to make good things popular and popular things good. I just wonder if you could reflect on that, because popularization is key to what you did at the CBC, is it not? Mm-hmm. I, I, I rather like that, because it suggests that there's not a choice to be made between being popular and being good. And a lot of the internal culture of the CBC when I got there was based on the notion that you had to choose one or the other, which seems a, a harsh choice to have to make, since no matter which way you go, you lose. And besides that, I thought it was untrue, in the sense that when you look at the quality of television right now, it is arguably never better. It's beautiful. I mean, you know, the top writers from Hollywood and from movies, they all want to write television now. And even the, you know, the great big shows, and I don't mean just the sort of you know, top cable shows like Mad Men or The Good Wife or any of these things, but top shows on conventional TV. I mean, they're they're beautifully made. They're much more complex. They're much more complex. Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a very interesting book, uh, since you're a bibliophile guy, by one of the New Yorker writers called Stephen Johnson, called Everything Bad is Good for You. And what he did was a quite interesting analysis, comparing the complexity of television shows now to those of the of the 70s in terms of the number of plot lines, the number of characters, the number of cues to the viewer as to, to locate you and situate you where you are. He did his PhD in um, 19th century English novels and used essentially the same sort of literary techniques that had been developed for analyzing them for analyzing television. And in fact, what you say is exactly right, that television now is not only much more complicated and much more demanding on the viewer, it's much better. Yeah. It's much smarter. Well, so, you mentioned Mad Men. Mad Men. That, well, to use an overused word, it's it's compelling in its recording of a cultural milieu that we're, we're shocked all, into recognizing. Really? Oh, I thought we all wanted to go back to it. Well, <laughs> men do, <certainly. laughs> uh, It's interesting, just uh, on the BBC, after the Pilkington Report, it, it became pretty clear to them that you know they stopped worrying about this absurd choice, that they, were, they realized there was no such choice to be made between good and popular. And you go out to the great studio complex in West London, and what you find there, written over all the walls, the slogans that inspire the folk, is audiences are everything to us. Yes, and in fact, I think that's what you came into the CBC. Well, that's what you talk about in your oh. book. And in fact, I should mention the name of the book. Please. Before we go much We've got to flog this book. Yes, it's called The Tower of Babel, Sins, Secrets, and Successes Inside the CBC. Speaking of sins, there's nothing worse than the sin of being boring. Yes. Well, when I first went, one of the things that I was preoccupied with was trying to understand what sort of difficulty would be involved in having the CBC become more entertaining, putting more emphasis on entertainment shows, on dramas and comedies. And 
Because that's the nature of television. That is the nature. It's an entertainment medium. It's an entertainment medium. And so I'd done a study to look at Canadians' perception of the brand of the CBC. And their perception, of course, was that it was a heavily news-dominated brand. It was a very dull brand, and it was the last place you would think of going to be entertained. So it was starting in a bad place. You then preached audience, because when you came into... The CBC, the audiences were no pretty way. pathetic levels. They'd gone away largely, yeah. They'd been losing audience for about 40 years on a slow, steady, downward uh, descent. So we knew we had to do something if we were going to change course and reconnect back with Canadians again. And you came up against what you call the constituency. I call them the constituency by which I mean the sort of chattering classes of, of English Canada. What they want from the CBC is something that's a bit, dare I say, a little like themselves. A little dull, uh, worthy, certainly not something that would be sexy and funny. And it would be accurate to say they want something that's normative or prescriptive rather than <clears throat> reflective. Yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, precisely one of the things we tried to do was to say what we don't want to do is we don't want to talk down to Canadians. What we want to do is exactly the reverse. We want to reflect back to Canadians just how clever and how amusing and how sophisticated we think they are. So the whole stance of the place was to be different. There's a wonderful thing that Barbara Frum said many, many years ago, just after the revolution in radio. She said what the revolution was really about it was a revolution of stance, where we stopped lecturing Canadians yes. and started loving them. And I think that's the long and the short of the shift that one has to make. You have to say, you know what, all these very clever people out there we're only there for one thing, which is to reflect back to you, you know, how, how clever you are, how amusing you are, how thrilled we are with, you know, being allowed to entertain you. Where it gets somewhat problematic, though, is where you start introducing the kind of tricks or gimmicks or branding that the private sector uses, and that upsets people who don't like what private news casters and news well, I don't know programming. what you mean, you mean like promoting the shows celebrating yeah, I mean, celebrating I mean, the stars celebrating the stars i think yeah. that's uh, that's probably something that gets up a lot of people's crawl well when we were reviewing the local news for example i would say to people because it was very stiff it was very worthy it was a little dull it was serious it was serious yeah and i'd say well let's just imagine what what are we actually saying to people here what we're saying is Invite us into your house every evening at 5.30. Well, who do you invite into your house? You don't invite into your house people you don't even know. You invite into your house people that you like, that you respect, that you think are agreeable to be with. That's mm -hmm. who you invite into your house. So you have to let yourself be known. You actually have to have a personality if anybody's going to bother to invite you in. And they have to know you. So the celebration of the on-air on the, on the on people is fundamental to the success of the show. Yeah, it could be argued, though, that the news is what's important, not who delivers it. Well, both things are true. Both things are absolutely true. If you have, you know, a newscast that is unattractive, cold, then people are going to say, well, I can go and get the news elsewhere in a way that's quite different from that, that's much more accessible and that's much friendlier. So yeah, you've got to do both. Like anything else, you can have the greatest story in the world if it isn't beautifully produced, beautifully made, nobody's yeah. going to watch it. That's the challenge that you faced when you went into the CBC is, it's fine if you make great programming, but if no one's watching it or celebrated or highbrow programming, but if no one's watching it, what's the point? What's the point? Would you say that that gets to the nub of your... Yeah, pretty much. There's a conflicted mandate yeah. with the CBC. 
And you, as I understand it from your book, went in and pushed one element of that mandate hard. Totally. And it caused a lot of squealing, and as a result, you're not in the job anymore. No, I think that's right. It's not altogether clear to me why I was fired, but I think I was fired for good ratings. (laughs) Well, you you were fired for doing too good a job at what you thought the mandate of the organization Well, I don't think it was be. just me. I mean, I think that if you judge these things on the basis of what Canadians think, then Canadians came to the CBC in much larger numbers than they were doing in the past. And over and above that, when you survey them and you ask them now, they'll say, yeah, the CBC is it's higher quality, it's more distinctive, it matters more to me, it's more essential to my life than it was before. And I don't know, like, who, what's, how did we make the judgment except on the basis of what it is that the people who pay for it want and what the people who pay for it like? I mean, like, how could there be a different judgment, ultimately? Well, again, I think it boils down to being prescriptive or reflective. I think. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to put it. And me, I'm in the reflective camp. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm in the celebrating Canadians camp. Just to look at the uh, cover of your book, uh, it was designed by one of the best dust jacket designers in the country, Jessica Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, eh? It's red and yellow and white, very eye-catching. But the thing that, ta- that caught my eye was the fact that you've, I don't know if you chose to put yourself in a, the sights of a, it's kind of like a rifle sight. Oh, yeah, right, on the back page, yeah. Uh, do you see yourself as some sort of target? No, I don't like to be a target, but I get turned into a target. And if you, if you turn to the back page, you'll see we had some recommendations from various people who'd covered what I was doing at the CBC and who described me in various ways. The Walrus, for example, opened an article on me by saying he was a bad man. Uh, Sturzberg was a one-man wrecking ball, according to the Toronto Star. So I thought it was important to get on the record that you know there, not everybody was wholly with me in this enterprise. People were very conflicted about it, and I think part of the interesting thing of the story is that people were. You know, some people felt very strongly one way, were said, yes, absolutely, what he's doing is right. I think that this is a kind of polarizing debate. And what's interesting to me is that the debate became so polarized that at a certain point, the language that was used was unbelievably intemperate. During the lockout, for example, myself and the previous president, Robert Rabinovich, and the head of human resources were described as the gang of three, a reference to Mao's mad wife and the murder of millions of people during the Cultural Revolution. But even more recently, in Toronto Life magazine, there was an article about my successor, Kirsten Stewart, where people said, well, she may appear to be easier going, but then Khrushchev looked good after Stalin. And I'm thinking to myself, really? Really? Is this appropriate? Is it appropriate in any possible way to compare me to a mass murderer when all I really stood for was making more popular TV shows, right? So it's funny because it shows you that even sort of sensible, sober Canadians can get completely crazy on the subject of the CBC and say things that are utterly intemperate and utterly inappropriate mm-hmm to the errors of my ways. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not uh, organizing concentration camps. I'm just trying to make some TV shows. Shedding a good light on this, at least there's obviously emotion. There's, Huge emotion. Uh, there's interest, even if mm. it is a kind of a, a conflicted, mandated yeah. mess. Yeah, it is And it is still a mess. It's a mess. And, and part of the reason it's a mess is because we've never actually come together as a country and said, this is what we want from the CBC. Choose. Do you want to have big popular entertainment shows, or do you want to have ballet on TV? You can have one, well, you but can, you can't have both. Well, I think perhaps that with the increase in the number of 
platforms that we have and the, and the fact that production doesn't cost anywhere near what it, what it used to, maybe we can have. Maybe we can have it all. I mean, it's a billion dollars that the CBC gets. Just to do the math straightforwardly, to make an hour of, of high-quality drama costs anywhere between one and a half and four million dollars an hour. It's enormously expensive. And the costs of making it are going up, they're not going down. CBC's financing compared to any other public broadcaster anywhere in the industrialized world, with the exception of the United States, where they don't need one, is at the absolute bottom on a per capita basis. So the BBC would get three times as much money for a country that has twice as many people that broadcast essentially in one language and in one time zone. So when you're that constrained financially, you can't. You must actually choose. You can't do both. I mean, if the if they had all the money in the world, yeah, maybe they could do both. So then you have to decide. Well, which of the two actually really matters? And if you believe that television is important, God knows Canadians watch it 26 hours a week. Then you should say, let's respect the medium. Let's focus on those parts of it that are clearly of the most interest to Canadians, and not just Canadians, but everywhere in the world, which is entertainment. Let's do it beautifully. Let's do it brilliantly. But if we distract ourselves into going and doing things that are really not about television, dare I say ballet on TV, then you've made a choice that not only means that you can't do the other thing, it means you've also completely confounded whatever the brand is that you're trying to put forward. So you got to make a, you got to make, people have to make up their minds, right? And well, uh, you hired Bain and company to, to, to try and come up with some kind of plan for you, and it was a complete waste of taxpayers' money. I didn't hire Bain, no, the president hired Bain and company. Can you touch on where we are right now, what the future you think will look like? Well, I think the future is going to be very difficult. I mean, it's, uh, this mo recent round of cuts comes on the back of the 2009 cuts, which were even bigger as a result of the recession. Uh, when you look forward as to where the, uh, the CBC is, it still is really, you know, really without a clear, clear direction, let alone a clear analysis of the challenges that face it. It did have a plan, which I guess I mock somewhat. So at the same time, what's going to happen? They may lose Hockey Night in Canada. They may lose some other funding. Their great rivals and CTV and Global are now flush with cash, exactly in the areas where the CBC is supposed to be. So it's going to have a very, very, very difficult time. Funny you talk about Ivan Fitzant. Domination came in. Yes. I think every time his name Media was, domination. He's almost like a Voldemort character. Well, book. I do that, uh, ironically, to a certain extent. I mean, I like Ivan Fitzant, and I think he's a brilliant guy. But he was a little bit set on, not just on dominating the CBC, but on dominating global as well. Eventually, you know, succeeded in driving it into insolvency. Not yeah. purely by himself. There were other circumstances as well. But those little stories I tell are quite funny, I think. I should congratulate you on writing a book that's definitely not boring. Oh, good. It's entertaining. Great. You separate your chapters into, into sort of different areas, sport and news and entertainment and the plan and radio. Take a look at the news because mm -hmm. you, you call it Fort News. Well, that's what they call it inside the CBC. Right. I look at TV Ontario and Steve Pakin, mm -hmm. and I don't know what kind of budget they have, but it seems to me that that's by far, is the best news programming on Canadian television. Glad you like it. You know how many people watch it? I don't take, care. Take, take I don't care. I'm just glad I've got that option. Well, that's good. you know how many people watch it? <laughs> Me and a couple other people? That's about it. 30,000 people. It's brilliant. Could be brilliant, but 30,000 people won't do for the CBC. It just won't do. I'm happy that people who like Steve Pakin, and I don't take anything away from the agenda, I think it's all great, should absolutely fine for TVO. 
Well, when you're talking about something like the CBC, it's got to matter to more than 30,000 people. It's paid for by everybody. It's got to make shows that actually people, you know, large numbers of people care about. And that's part and parcel of the debate, right? Some people actually said to me, why don't you make a show like Steve Pagan? That's what, that was my next question. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, and you can make great current affairs shows that draw huge numbers. So, for example, after we redid The Fifth Estate and then moved it into Friday nights, it was getting, not 30,000, it was getting 600,000, sometimes 700,000 viewers. This year, Marketplace, because Marketplace was redone as well, also moved to a better time slot, this year it was doing many nights over a million viewers, not 30,000 viewers. So there's lots of ways of going at these things, if you have the money and you have the will, you know, where you can explore complex questions, you know, that are important to the public agenda and still attract large audiences. And I think that's absolutely got to be it. If nobody's watching, then as you said earlier, it doesn't matter. To uh, support your case, the greatest English language poet, author, writer of all time, William Shakespeare, was as much as anything an astute businessman mm. whose livelihood depended on attracting audiences. Yeah. Because otherwise they wouldn't hire him to write any more plays. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and he was able to write on more than one level. There's a little quote here, if you don't mind my finding, yeah. which, I, yeah. which I loved, and I used it to set up the chapter on entertainment. And uh, you're a bookish guy, so you're probably a fan of Nichols and Baker. Yeah, I've interviewed Nichols and Baker. Have you? Yeah. I'm a huge fan. Anyhow, in one of it, in his most recent book, I came across this little quote, which I love. The Anthologist. Yeah, The Anthologist. At some point... You have to set aside snobbery and what you think is culture and recognize that any random episode of Friends is probably better, more uplifting for the human spirit than 99% of the poetry or drama or fiction or history ever published. Think of that, of course. Yes, Tolstoy, and of course, yes, Keats, and blah, blah, and yes, indeed, of course, yes. But we're living in an age that has a tremendous richness of invention, and some of the most inventive people get no recognition at all. They get tens of money, but no recognition as artists, which is probably much healthier for them, and better for their art. Back to your Shakespearean thing. Uh, was Shakespeare recognized as a great artist in his time? I have the faintest idea. Yeah, I think his, his reputation has gone in and out of... Uh, now, of course, it's enormous. Fort News, you wanted to move the National to 11 p.m. Mm. That must have got the chickens clucking. Yeah, yeah, everybody went crazy. doesn't matter what you do, everybody goes crazy. We had originally both Marketplace and the Fifth Estate sitting in Killer's Row, right? It was there, sitting there at 9 o'clock on Wednesdays, and uh, this is like when the top U.S. shows are on. We said, we're going to move them and put them on on Friday night when the competition is not as fierce. And, of course, everybody said, oh, Friday night, we know what you're doing. You're putting it in the dead zone, the dead zone. But, of course, the numbers went up by 200,000 viewers for each of them. The national's in the wrong place, and it's in the wrong place for two reasons. Where people go to watch late-night television is typically at 11 o'clock. But if they want to watch it at 10 o'clock, it's not a problem. We'll put it on the news network, which is as fully distributed practically as the CBC. But then what happens is that the 10 o'clock slot opens up. The 10 o'clock slot is a great slot. That's where you can do much more sophisticated, much more adult drama mm -hmm. than you could do at 9 o'clock, and certainly than you can do at 8 o'clock before the watershed. So that was the theory. I was totally convinced that if we did that, there would be more viewers for the national, not less. And that, that we would also create an opportunity for Canadian producers and writers and uh, 
and showrunners to work in much more sophisticated, you know, fare. The funny thing is everybody has an opinion on these things, but their opinions are essentially uninformed by any knowledge of television. Mm. They just say, oh, uh, th that can't be right. You can't change. You know, it's funny. If I were to express views on surgery, people would think I was insane, uh, unless I was a surgeon, of course. But everybody seems to think that their view on television and what makes sense mm. is completely valid, even though they've never worked in television and have no idea how it actually operates. It's a very strange thing. I used to like to say to people, you know, the problem with running the CBC oh. is that everybody in the country knows how to do it better than me. Well, that's because they spend yeah. so much time with it or with television. Yeah. Well, and, and in fact, your uh, bringing in of, of Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune mm. for audience reasons, mm. because you want to have a big audience going into your yeah. lineup, yeah. again caused all sorts of... Yeah, but there's two funny aspects to it. The, I think people objected because they were American shows. Nobody objected we put on Coronation Street. Why is that? Sort of inherent anti-Americanism, partly. And partly they objected because they were game shows. Not that they'd ever actually played Jeopardy. Because Jeopardy, uh, I tell the story in the book, I love this. When IBM decided to teach computers how to play games, they started with an easy game. They started chess. with chess. Yes. And only when they could defeat Kasparov on a regular basis did they turn their minds to a much harder game, which is Jeopardy. <laughs> this final question, I thought it was a bit odd the way you ended the book. Peter Mansbridge. Oh, just when we're having a lunch with the uh, union. Yeah, you don't mention much of Mansbridge throughout the book. You make a joke about the fact that you're meeting with a union official. Uh, is it Mansbridge who got you fired? No, no, not at all. No, no, my relationship with Peter is great. No, no, not at all. It was only just because it, that happened to be the way it worked out. If it had been somebody equally celebrated as Peter, then other people that would have recognized him sitting in the restaurant, the anecdote would have been about them. And why did you choose to end it like that? I don't know. Partly because it was interesting to me that despite the lockout, that when it finally closed, the relationship with the union was really good. In fact, the same guy who's mentioned here showed up uh, two nights ago for the launch in, in Toronto. And I just thought it was in some ways symbolic of the shift that had taken place across the narrative arc of the book itself. Whether I was vilified internally or vilified externally, then I think by the end people were pretty happy internally, and certainly the public was much happier than they had been before. So it was really to try to find an anecdote that would capture the closing of the arc, but in a way that was funny. Well, thanks for writing the book, and thanks for uh, <laughs> thank you talking to us this afternoon. Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Peter Sturzberg. Richard. Who, sorry, it's your father. It's right? my father. You could speak to him too if you like. <laughs> you no, know, he's around. He's happy to give you a call. Oh, is he? Give him a call. Yeah. Okay. He's a very yeah. old man now, but he's around. Yeah, I used to collect books on uh, Canadian prime ministers, so oh, you've got his in my collection, right. both of them. Well, that's right. All four volumes of it: two on Diefenbaker and two on Pearson. Two books, and two volumes each. I've been speaking with. <laughs> I might leave that in there. <laughs> Richard Sturzberg, who was head of CBC's English language services television online and radio from 2004 to 2010. What are you doing now? Well, I'm uh, on the book tour, and I'm, I'm consulting to some uh, firms who have some business strategy problems that involve media. Very good. Thanks again. Thank you.